you asked for. It was about work, and uh, I was trying to figure out, you know, what are people's attitudes about work, and how do people feel about work? So I went to that uh, great window into the soul of humanity, the Internet, and just to see how people feel about work. And so here's some of the things I found as I was sort of, and actually Wendy helped me with this, as we were surfing around, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, my stages of getting ready for work. In just one hour from now, I only have four hours left until I have to work three mere hours. (laughs) Oh, what was that one? Oh, yeah, the first five days after the weekend are always the hardest. Hello, Monday. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my weekend. Prepare to die. We interrupt your happiness to bring you Monday. Your regularly scheduled happiness will resume on Friday. (laughs) couple more. It's Monday, and guess who's not motivated? That'll be me. And this is my Monday face. Three horrible facts. Today is not Friday. Tomorrow is not Friday. Even the day after tomorrow is not Friday. (laughs) I think there's one more. Monday, me, true story. So as we sort of glimpse into the, uh, the picture of work as revealed through the lens of the Internet, people seem to have a problem with it. And um, our attitudes towards work can quite often be like this. And when you think about work outside of the redeeming nature, as I mentioned, of the gospel and the reality of Jesus Christ, I mean, if you could imagine a world where you, you know, sort of live to work and work to live and, uh, you know, basically just put one day in after the other until, you know, you retire and then you die. That's pretty depressing. And that's the way without Christ, really, you have to look at work. It's just, a, it's just something that you have to get by. And, uh, but what we want to look at today is how the fact that there is a God who loves us and the fact that there is a gospel of Jesus Christ and our relationships suddenly are transformed by that and we are becoming new people because of that, how that changes work. And so just a quick review of last week and the big picture for people who aren't here. We looked at the theology of work. We looked at the cultural mandate of humankind that was given in Genesis, that we were to um, subdue the earth and fill it, and the cultural mandate to create, and that theologically that, that work as part of being made in God's image is that we are engaging in secondary creation, that we are image bearers of our creator, and that therefore we engage in sub-creation or secondary creation. And so we create things, and we build things, and we invent things, and that we are engaging in expressing the image of God in that. And then secondly, that we're stewards of creation that God gave us, that we're to cultivate and nurture and manage and fill the world around us, that there is an expectation of God before the fall, before anything else, that we would be at work stewarding his creation. And then thirdly, that our work actually participates in the redemption. Our he- when we heal or we help to care for the sick or when we repair things or when we create new things, when we teach and bring in new knowledge, um, that those things are an imperfect glimpse of the perfection to come, that we are to be a preserving influence and a redeeming influence on a fallen world. And so we're participating in a little tiny bit in the redemption of the world that's to come. And that was sort of the theology, the big picture of work, that there is no secular and sacred divide, that we don't take our life and say, well, this is secular, this is money, this is work, and this is sacred over here. But in fact, everything is sacred. Our faith doesn't stay compartmentalized outside of our work. 
And so the gospel invades every aspect of human life and transforms it. And so this week, what we're going to look at is how does God intend the gospel to transform that broken social and power structure of work? And so what I want to look at is that the gospel redeems work in these ways. First of all, it breaks down sinful social structures, that the gospel gives work a new motive, that gospel-redeemed work aims at a different reward, that gospel-redeemed work provides a right perspective to power, and fifthly, that gospel-redeemed work is a picture of Christ. So as we look at this, when looking at Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9, and before I get there, because we're going to deal with this word slaves, doulos, meaning the lowest form of servitude uh, in society. And so in Ephesians 6, 5 to 9, that first word in verse 5 is slaves. Could be translated servants, could be translated bond servants, but it's all the same Greek word doulos, and it means the lowest form of servitude in society. And so we have to address the slavery issue, which is what I'm going to do first. And it's impossible on this side of the American and British and sort of Western slave trade of the 17 and 1800s not to have for ourselves a cultural reaction to the word slave and the concept of slavery. And I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this, but it's important that we take three or four minutes just to understand what the Apostle Paul is speaking of when he speaks of slavery and understand that he is not speaking of exactly the same thing that we think of when we say the word slave on this side of the American slave trade. Slavery, understand this, slavery has always been an ugly answer to otherwise ugly problems. So there's ugly problems and slavery is an ugly answer to those ugly problems. Mainly those problems of financial debt or war reparations. Okay, as nations went to war and victories were won, then it was expected that at minimum the soldiers and then even other civilian captives of the losing nation would serve the winning nation as slaves, as a spoil of war or as a reparation for the cost that the war had inflicted on those nations. And so slavery was an ugly answer to an ugly problem. It was a problem of war reparations and slavery was an answer to it. Secondly, as families found themselves in crushing debt or without work, in unemployment, facing starvation, the last thing those families had to offer was their own labor in exchange for nothing more than participating in the food and shelter of the household that they worked for. It was a financial exchange that would be akin to bankruptcy, but by necessity involved the removal of freedoms. And so that's an ugly problem, and slavery was an ugly solution. And so we're not condoning slavery in that sense. But what slavery was not and not intended to be among God's people was a market or a trade for people's lives. It was not intended to be a market for kidnapped people who are dealt with in violence the way we think of slavery on this side of the slave trade. And so when we think of this culturally, we have to back our brains up 2,000 years or farther and realize that the slavery that's talked about here is not exactly the same thing. And so understand that. When we look at even, if you go back 4,000 years and you look at God's intent towards redeeming the ugly answer of slavery uh, in the world, um, 
You look at Exodus 21, and, and God says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. It was never God's intent that slavery would be kidnapping people and then putting them into forced work. Or Exodus 21:26, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. In other words, you're not to be violent, you're not to offend, you're not to hurt your slaves, Set them free if you cause them pain in that way. Deuteronomy 23, you shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he chooses within one of your towns. Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. So in other words, if a slave was abused by another master to the point where he would run away from that household and and he runs to your household, you don't turn him back to the household where he was being abused and ran away from. You shelter him, and he can live wherever he wants, however he wants, and you don't do him any wrong. And so in Roman households, if you go into the time that Paul is writing, it was normal to have several slaves, and the slaves were part of the family. They were part of the household. They were part of the domestic staff. Sometimes they were doctors. Sometimes they were lawyers. They were educated. They had rights under Roman law. They could own property. They could even take their masters to court over certain complaints. So slavery was rarely for life. It was a set to be set free when their debts were paid or set free when they had acquired enough property to buy their own freedom. And under Jewish law, slaves were set free after every six years. And so they may not have had great social standing, but they were not uniformly mistreated or lived in misery the way we are influenced to think of slaves. In fact, they could even be well-respected in a loved part of the household. Now, let's give you a quick example there. This is all overview to deal with this issue of slavery. In Luke 7, 2 to 3, an example is given of a slave, uh, of a Roman slave even. Now, a centurion had a servant, and it's the same word, doulos, okay? So this is the same low slave, low form of servanthood. A centurion had a servant, a slave, who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to the elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. So this is just an example, a snapshot out of even Jesus' ministry where a Roman centurion desires Jesus to come and heal his slave because he's a valued and esteemed member of his household. And so Paul talks about the Christian slave and Christian master in Philemon, urging that they be reconciled and accept each other as brothers now. So if you look at the letter that Paul writes in Philemon, it's about the reconciliation. And he says in Philemon 15 and 16, For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, the same word, doulos, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And so I say all of that just to say we get an idea around this idea of slavery. And what slavery would look like in that time was really more of an idea of bankruptcy or more of an idea of minimum wage. I mean, I don't know, you sign up for your first mortgage and your car payment and you go to work and you look at your check and what's left at the end of it and you wonder if you're not a slave, you know, to the bank and to the car company and everything else. You are working to subsist and that was the situation with these household servants. And that also to understand the context of this verse is that Paul is, in fact, giving a household code. He's giving rules to the household of how Christianity or how the gospel would affect the household. And so if you were to go earlier in Ephesians, you would see that he talks about how women are 
to treat their husbands and how husbands are to treat their wives and how children are to respect their parents and how parents are not to frustrate their children. And now he's moving on in the household and he's saying, now masters and slaves or your domestic staff and the head of the household, how do you respond to each other? So Paul is systematically laying out a household code. And so that's the context that we deal with slavery or bond servant or servant. And so the gospel-redeemed work, the first thing that I want to talk about is that gospel-redeemed work breaks down these sinful social structures. The trajectory that God had set Israel on in Exodus and Deuteronomy with regard to slavery and the law, so God set Israel on a different trajectory towards slaves. And the breaking in of the gospel through Jesus Christ as instructed by Paul and Peter and others, it created an environment where essentially it was impossible for slavery in any form of cruelty to last. It was possible as a temporary economic solution, but that was the limit of it. There's no rule in the law of God. There was no rule in the instructions of Paul, as we're going to see, for slavery to remain as an, a form of cruelty or a form of, of, of violence against people. And understand that Paul is not addressing in these verses the morality of the social institutions of his day. In other words, it's not his intent in these scriptures to debate the value of economic solutions or of war reparation slavery over a better or more liberating labor law and unions he's not there to debate to debate the economic reality of his situation and what society has come up with in the same way that paul does not argue for better forms of government which such as representative democracy which was known in his day as as being better than the kings and the emperors that ruled paul's not getting into these debates about what's a better form of government what's a better form of labor law what's a better economic solution to these things what Paul is addressing is how do Christians live in the social institutions that they find themselves in? What does a Christian household look like in marriage? What does a Christian household look like between parents and children? What does a Christian household look like between masters and employees of any type? And so you may be thinking about this little background and you're thinking, okay, that's fine, Paul, that's an interesting history lesson, but you know, what does that have to do with us? What does it have to do with us today? Because we're not slaves, we're not bond servants. You know, I've got an employment contract and I can leave anytime I want, so it, it's irrelevant to me. But it is relevant because if the gospel has the power to break into and transform a slave master relationship, then the gospel clearly has the power to transform a more modern employee relationship where there's far more natural freedom. In other words, Paul has chosen the hardest possible relationship to redeem. He's taken a, a relationship between a person who is in indentured servitude, even if, even if it's not violent, even if it's not kidnapping, he's taking a position at the lowest economic scale who is literally owned by someone else, attached to that household indefinitely, and he says that relationship can be redeemed. And so if that relationship between a slave and a master can be redeemed by the gospel, then surely our relationship at works can be redeemed. Surely our relationship with our bosses can be redeemed. Our relationship with each other at work can be redeemed. I mean, if a slave and a master can make it work under the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it can work for us. The reality is in the Roman Empire at this time, up to 30% of the population were slaves. And so if the gospel had nothing to say to slaves, then the gospel had nothing to say to a third of the population. But Paul says the gospel has something to say to slaves and to masters. 
And it speaks especially to those people that are in the worst condition. The gospel speaks especially to people who are in the deepest despair and the hardest bondage. And that can be us in our labor. That can be us at work, even with unions, even with labor laws, even with the financial freedoms that we have and the prosperity that is at our doorstep in Canada. The reality is the deepest despair and the hardest bondage that we have for some of us could be in our work, that we can't find the work that we have, that we have a boss who is abusive, that we have are stuck in a place and see no escape from it, that we have relationships at work that actually humiliate us and beat us down And it is the most despairing part of our life. And Paul says that that part of your life, that work, that labor, that hard bondage is redeemable by the gospel. The churches of the time were filled with slaves, just like they were in the American South. Christian slaves and Christian masters sat in the same churches and the words of Paul were read to both the slave and the master together. And keep that in mind that these are letters written by Paul to the church that they were written for them to hear together. And that this letter is being read to slaves and masters, and slaves and masters are both hearing these things. And this is what he says in Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. Bondservants, or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Those are the words of God. So the gospel breaks broken social institutions like slavery. The gospel created a situation where the type of violent, kidnapping, um, ownership-type slavery couldn't last. Paul was not trying to reject slavery. He wasn't trying to make a statement about it one way or the other. But what the gospel did is it made it so that that institution eventually couldn't stand up in in the light of the Christian gospel, just as it did with Onesimus and Philemon. had to break eventually. Secondly, the gospel redeems work And gives work a new motive. So he says, Obey with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. And so part of what Paul is applying the gospel to is the reality of bad attitudes towards work. Right, All those pictures that we had at the beginning of how Monday comes and you just dread Monday and tomorrow's not Friday, the day after tomorrow, nor the day after tomorrow is Friday. And so part of what Paul is applying the gospel to here as you read this text is the reality of bad attitudes towards work, not giving a fair effort to your master. And Paul says here that we should not just work hard in eye service. In other words, you don't just work when you're being watched. You just don't work when it gives you an advantage to be seen as working hard. Paul says you should work hard all the time. You should give your fair effort all the time, not just when we're being watched or not just when we have a chance to look good, not as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing God's will from our heart. And so Paul just says, do an honest day's work, slaves, servants, bond servants, employees, house staff. He says, do an honest day's work, work from your heart because you're a servant of Jesus now. Maybe before you were a servant of this 
person. You are a servant of the world. You are a servant of money. You are a slave to your job. You are a slave to, you know, getting ahead in the world. You are a slave to your mortgage, whatever it was you were a slave to before. Paul says you're not a slave to that anymore. You're not a slave to your work. You're a slave to Jesus now. Your motive now is to do the will of God. And God's will is that you would be a capable worker, that you would do a capable job in your work. And so you work because it's God's will to work. Do a good job. Proverbs 18 and 9 says, Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 11, Paul is speaking to the church at Thessalonica and he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And so Paul is saying to the church, be good workers because Christ is now your master because you're working for the will of God. Or in 1 Timothy 5.8, he says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God's desire, God's will, is that we would work honestly. And the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, is that you have a new boss. That your boss is not anymore that jerk in accounting. That your boss is not anymore, you know, that idiot at head office. You know, that's not your boss anymore. It's not the angry floor manager. It's not the grumpy old farmer. Your boss is not that person anymore. That as a new creation in Christ, all of our work is for Jesus. All of our work is for God. And your motive is no longer to be a pleaser. It's no longer to please the jerk in accounting. Your motive is no longer to please the head office. Your motive is no longer uh, to be a slave to the corporate you know, uh, HR accounting and how far up the rung of the ladder you're going to get with this appraisal. It's not to be a people pleaser, but it's to be a God pleaser. And Paul phrases it in this text. He says, as if working for Christ. And you could say, well, that's a bit of a metaphor or whatever. He's not saying you are working for Christ. He's saying work as if you're working for Christ. But he also says that it's God's will. And it's interesting because we look at the same text that Paul wrote. He wrote the same household code to the church in Colossae. So if you were to go to Colossians and see the same text in Colossians 3, 23 to 24, he phrases it this way. Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And here he says it more explicitly. You are serving the Lord Christ. So Paul is saying that as Christians, when the gospel comes into your life and when you realize that you're a child of God, you're no longer working for those taskmasters. You're no longer working for those bosses. You're now working for Christ. And so you have to have your whole head sort of transformed into thinking about how your work goes. And God is watching. God is paying attention to your work. When we begin to work for God, our work does not go unrewarded. And Paul even gives an incentive to do this work. Not just that you're serving Christ, but he even incentivizes us. I love it. Because gospel-redeemed work, the third thing is, it aims at a different reward. Paul doesn't say just work as if you're working for Christ because that's the warm, fuzzy thing to do and because, you know, you should work hard when you're working for God. He says in verse 8, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So Paul is saying it doesn't matter if you're doing slave work or free work. It doesn't matter whether it's work that's demanded of you or work that you have chosen to do. If you work diligently for God, you should know that your work will not be unrewarded. You will receive back from the Lord far more than you can imagine. He says not only should you work like you're working for God, like you're working for Christ, he says God is watching your work. And as you work, you will be rewarded for it. 
It's amazing to think of that. Psalm 62.12 says that God will render or God will give to man according to his work. A modern writer, Randy Alcorn, is a, he's a terrific writer, and Randy Alcorn has spent more time studying Scripture on this topic than anyone I know. And so if you were to pick up any of Randy Alcorn's books, he would just blow your mind on this topic. But I'll just touch on a few things that he said in, in one of his recent books. He's talking about the law of rewards, and that's the name of the book. And he says a principle of the law of rewards, this, this idea that God is watching what we're doing, and he gives us an incentive to work not only for Christ, but an incentive because he's watching what we do and will reward what we do. He points out these realities or these principles that we know from the Word of God and from the Scripture, that giving or serving brings greater blessing than receiving. That's true. Have you ever heard that? That you will be rewarded by blessing through giving or serving and is greater than by receiving. Principle two, that when we invest in God's kingdom, we receive greater rewards later in heaven. Or thirdly, that God offers us rewards that are eternal and imperishable and inexhaustible as opposed to earthly rewards which are perishable and exhaustible. Or fourthly, when we see our lives through the lens of eternity, our attitude towards wealth and work change drastically. And that's true. Or fifthly, that obeying God is not only right, it's smart. It will always pay off in the end to obey God. And finally, desiring rewards is a proper motivation for serving Christ. And there's other principles as well, but we just saw that one. That it's okay to desire rewards. It seems weird, but it's okay to serve Christ and say, I'm serving Christ with the expectation of your promise, Jesus. I mean, these, these slaves who are looking for hope, the hope that Paul is giving them in the gospel is that the hope that you have to not despair and to serve well your master is that God is paying attention to what you are doing. He's looking at your heart and he's looking at your service and your faithful work is going to be rewarded. That's a legitimate hope that bond servants have. That's a legitimate hope that we have as we serve as though serving Christ, as we serve as though serving God, that God is watching and we will be rewarded. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that our rewards are not limited to whatever payback we can get on this earth. I mean, isn't that good? Isn't that good that when you do a, a good day's work or you've done your month or you've done your year and you look at the end and you look at your paycheck and what you got and, and you think, well, that's it? The good news of the gospel is that isn't it because God has been watching that whole month and that whole year and the good work that you've been doing with sincerity from your heart, wholehearted work for the sake of the gospel and for, for Jesus, God is going to reward that. It, the, the payback isn't just your check. The payback isn't just you know, your health care insurance. The payback is far more, far more than what we can get on this earth where moths eat and rust destroys. If we work rightly on earth and we are under the eyes of God, He is the master that's always watching. He is the master that will reward us perfectly for what we do. And so we don't just work when it looks good for us. We don't just work for our earthly masters when they're watching. We work for God because He's always watching and He gives us greater rewards. Fourthly, gospel-redeemed work provides a right perspective to power. This is an interesting one. Check this out in verse 9. Paul has been reading this letter and he says to the slaves and now to the masters, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. This is one of the most amazing things <laughs> that Paul reveals 
that the gospel accomplishes in Ephesians or just about any other letter. If you're looking at it socially, this is transformative. You know, it's probably one of the craziest things that was read from his letter on a Sunday morning, right? So you've got to understand, Paul's written these letters. They go out, copies of them go out to the churches. The people gather. The house churches all come together on a Sunday morning. They meet together on the first day of the week. They do communion. And then they would say, oh, we have a letter from Paul. And so they would read this letter to everybody. And Paul reads this letter on Sunday morning. Paul doesn't, but the leader would read this letter from Paul to Christian slaves and Christian masters. Households would be sitting in the same room, and it completely levels the structure of power in the master-servant or employee-employer relationship. just completely flattens it out. Paul starts off by saying that slaves should respect their masters. And in fact, the fact that Paul addresses the slaves before the masters is revolutionary in itself. If you were to ask the philosophers or the social advocates of the time, you know, if you had a household code and you wanted to change the way household functions, who would you talk to? Well, you talk to the masters. The slaves just do whatever the masters tell them to do. So if you want to change things, then the way you change things in the household is you, tell, you talk to the masters. But Paul starts out in his letter speaking to the slaves first. And he speaks to the slaves twice as much or more than he speaks to the masters. And so that in itself is revolutionary because this letter is being read and the masters and slaves are sitting there and Paul starts talking to the slaves as if they deserve his attention first before the masters. And so then he gets to the end of talking about the slaves and he says, you know, obey and respect, you know, and do a good hard day's work. And the masters are sitting there saying, yep. That'll help, you know. Get that labor force working hard. That's what's wrong with this country. People aren't working hard enough. And the masters are sitting back thinking, that's a good word, Paul. Preach it. Amen. But then after he addresses the slaves, when he speaks to the masters, pretty much all he says is, you masters, act like you're slaves. And stop with your threats. Stop being bullies and act like they do. And so... You both have the same master in heaven and he doesn't show any partiality between the two of you. So whatever your slave is doing, you should be doing too. You should be respecting them. You shouldn't be threatening them. You should be treating them with kindness. You should be honoring them and esteeming them. You should be giving them the respect and working wholeheartedly for them. You should be treating them fairly and justly. In the parallel Colossians passage, when Paul rewrites this instruction, he makes it even more clear to the masters, just like he clarified the working for God, saying that you are working for Jesus Christ. He clarifies it even more for the masters when he rewrites it to the Colossians. He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. (laughs) So, So he makes it more of a threat, actually, in Colossians. He says, wrongdoers will get their due, masters. Wrongdoers will be paid back for the wrong that they have done. And God is not partial. Literally, he's no respecter of persons. You're walking around your house with all these slaves and you think you deserve a lot of respect and you think you're the king of the castle. God is not a respecter of persons. God does not treat anyone with any more or less respect than anyone else. Because compared to God, the level, the playing field is level. You know, there's no Mount Everest, you know, in little Halliburton Mountain to God. When you, when you think of Mount Everest and you think of Skyline Park, we think, oh, you know, respect to Mount Everest. Well, then there's God way up there in the Andromeda Galaxy somewhere. Everything is flat to God. We're all his servants. And the masters who are strutting around like they 
have deserve some sort of partiality, God says, no, you're no different than your slave. So the good news of the gospel then, how does the gospel get in here and transform it, is that when Jesus enters into the equation, all the power structures are leveled out. In the world, there's all kinds of power structures, right? There's all kinds of classism and elitism and, you know, this person's smarter than this person or this person's the CEO and this person is the guy who sweeps the halls, you know, or this person is the surgeon and and this is the nurse and this is the guy who pushes the cart around and cleans out the bedpans. You know, any part of work that you want to go to, there's all these power structures and there's all these hierarchies and there are all these classes. And when the gospel intercedes, when the when Jesus comes in and the reality of God comes into the situation, all of a sudden it's leveled out. There is no partiality. That our attitude towards relationships at work and these power structures need to be completely transformed. That we don't go striding through the halls because we've got the three-piece suit and the tie and the six-figure income because we're the CEO or even because we're the owner. That the person who is emptying out the garbage pails has just as much credibility in the eyes of God and just as much value as anybody else. The reality is, is that it's completely flat. And the servant is to serve dutifully and with diligence. And the master is to reward that servant with fairness and justice and to do them no wrong. And it's not a question of power. It's only a question of relationship to each other and how they will treat each other properly in the roles that they have. And Paul drives this home in a separate passage in Galatians when he's explaining the new reality of of humanity set free by Jesus. This is how he says it in Galatians 3.26. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. So Paul just says, it's flat. Flatten it out. Take your whole hierarchical structure and just forget about it. Because it doesn't matter when you belong to God. Who's who and who you think you are. The gospel destroys those sinful power structures in human relationships at work. Slaves and masters both have to listen to this. And we as Christians, we both have to listen to this, whether we're the employee or whether we're the manager, whether we're the business owner or we're the guy working for the business owner. There's a message here for slaves and there's a message here for masters. There's a message here for employees and how we do our work. There's a message here for employers and how we treat our employees. God says it's flat. God says, come into this with gospel-changed attitudes. Come into this with gospel-redeemed approaches to how you work. And all of this instruction from Paul starts back in Ephesians 5.21. Fifthly, the gospel-redeemed work is a picture of Christ. So this last point that I want to make is what's woven through all of this scripture is a subtext from Paul, and it's not explicitly stated, but it's hard to ignore that this new relationship between master and slave and all of these instructions to the new Christian household are all based on one clear message that we are to serve one another in humility. All of this household code, all of this household instruction started back in Ephesians 5.21. Ephesians 5.21 ended with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul is now going on to explain how you are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He describes the submission between wives and husbands. And then he describes the submission between children and their parents. And now he's describing the submission mutually between slaves and masters. It's all mutual submission to each other in our respective roles. And all of this mutual submission reflects the humility and submission, which is the mystery of Jesus Christ himself. 
and the mystery of the submission of Jesus to God and to us. Listen to this and hear the gospel echo of submission from Christ. It's Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. What word? Doulos. Emptied himself, taking the lowest form of servitude, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the subtext running through all this submission of employees and serving God and masters doing right by servants, all of the subtext here of doulos and servanthood is in the framework of the mystery of Christ who has come to serve us. And so Jesus takes the form of the lowest slave of low standing in order to humble himself in obedience to the point of death. And this is the picture of our submission in work. It's the picture of our submission in servanthood, just like it is in marriage, just like it is in our family, just like it is in our relationship to work and service is meant to be a picture of the servanthood of Christ. And so, in fact, if you look at the verses of Colossians 4, 2 to 3, right after Paul talks about this issue of work and masters and how they treat each other and what, how, how they're to relate to each other, Paul asks that the masters should pray for themselves and for him that their conduct might be an open door to declare the mystery of Christ. Doesn't that sound familiar? Ephesians 5, when he's talking about marriage, and he says, I know this is a mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church when I'm talking about marriage. You remember that? And so he says about marriage that marriage should reflect the mystery of Christ. And then in Colossians, as he's talking about slaves and masters and they're working together, Paul says that that relationship should open a door for the gospel to speak about the mystery of Christ and the church. And he says that right on the heels of explaining this relationship between masters and slaves. And so I'm saying all of that to say the gospel should transform how we think about our work. And do we think like that? Do we think that that is how our work operates in our lives or how we manage workers might speak to the realities of a humble Jesus, that the good work that we do willingly and humbly and serving the people who are over us might be a picture of the way that Jesus serves and it might raise and open a door for people to ask, why do you work this way? Everybody else is complaining about the boss and you just do a good day's work every time. When he's not in the room, we're always, you know, yapping and standing at the water cooler complaining about head office. But you never complain. You just get your paperwork done and go home and come back and you're cheerful every day at work. Doesn't that perhaps maybe open a door to give an answer for how you serve with humility and serve faithfully because Jesus served us first by coming and making himself a doulos, a slave to the world, humbled himself to save us? If we don't have that in our minds when we're thinking about work, then then we're not working right. And so for us, the gospel is very practical. When Jesus shows up in our lives, it transforms everything. Before we have Jesus, work is just a worldly thing. Work is just a necessary evil. Work is just a drudgery. You know, as Studs Terkel says, work is about violence and ulcers and daily humiliation and kicking the dog. And it's about lousy jobs and arrogant bosses, and it's about squeezing the most out of lazy workers. That's what work is apart from the gospel. But when we realize how God made us and what purpose we have in God, when Jesus shows up in our life, suddenly work can be something different. It can be secondary creation. 
Work can be expressing the image of God in creation. It can be stewardship. It can be redemption. Work is not in vain. Work is not just to get a paycheck at the end of the week. It is to please God and not man. It is not just to have our house and mortgage paid for. It's to store up rewards in heaven. And all of our efforts will be rewarded with imperishable rewards. And not only that, but the power structures can be broken at work. And the, and the feeling of servitude and despair and humility can then become a picture of humility and self-sacrifice that opens the door for the gospel. That's how God intended work to work. And that's what Paul is giving instruction on. And so how are we going to embrace that as a church then? So what does that mean Monday morning? You know, is it the first five days after the weekend are always the worst? Or is it Monday morning we can be transformed by the power of the gospel to redeem work for the purpose of the kingdom? And where does it start as a church? It starts with every individual allowing the gospel to penetrate our work lives and our own areas of slavery or mastery. It's how we will work as employees. It's how we will behave as masters. Paul's word to the people of Ephesus and Colossae in these letters and to all the churches they were passed on to, Paul's word to us is to let the gospel transform your work. If the gospel can heal the relationship between a slave and a master, then the gospel certainly has the power to heal the relationship that you have at work with your boss or heal your attitude towards work with how you work and the things that you do in your labor. Just let the gospel transform your work and see how it then transforms the people around you. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that even in just these few short verses, five verses that Paul speaks about work, it uncovers for us power structures and social realities and despair being turned to hope and hopelessness being turned to rewards in heaven and healing father your gospel impacts in every way and so i would ask lord that as we consider this labor day we consider our labor how will we allow your gospel to transform our attitudes towards work how will we allow your gospel to transform our relationships with our boss or our relationships with our employees father help us to remember we all serve you We all serve you. We've all got a master much bigger than head office. And head office has a much bigger master than us. So, Lord, just uh, humble us as we go into this work week. Let us enjoy this time as we prepare the new season and go into this, our, our work life transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.